here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content's added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. Hi everyone, welcome back to another Q&A session in which Carly and Cece answer all of your burning questions. Now remember, if you do have a question, go to theshitaboutwriting.com, look at the Ask a Question page, you get to record a question for up to a minute, give us as much details as you can, and we'll get to it as soon as we possibly can. We try and aim for one bonus episode a month in which we do our comp titles and our questions. All right, Cece, we're going to kick it off with you. Here is the first question. Hey, my name is Sarah, and I'm so grateful for all the things you do for writers like me. I'm looking to understand a little bit about how I can stop being blind to my own words. In other words, I keep revising my novel, and the more I do, the more I can't really see it anymore. I can't really understand it anymore. It's almost like I've just completely gone blind to it. Can you help? 
Thanks. Okay. Very good question. Two things before I give you advice. One, what you're describing is super normal, super common. In my opinion, all writers, all writers lose objectivity at some point in the process. And of course they do. This is a bonkers journey to be in. They get really close to their work. Writing is a solitary act. And the revision process can seem endless. So at some point you're going to go, wait, is there even a book here? And two, the fact that you are aware of this and you are gives you an advantage because guess what? Most people do not have this awareness, which leads them to making mistakes like querying too early. So good job on your self-awareness. Now let's talk strategy. I would recommend two ways to overcome this obstacle. The first is to put it away. Literally, close the file for at least three months. You might want to do longer than three months, actually. And I do mean close the file. You're not allowed to read a single word or touch it for like three months. And spend those three months reading books in your genre. Try reading it in an e-reader. Not beta reading for other people. Reading successful novels in your genre. And then here's what you do. Your brain is going to start to recognize the fundamentals of a successful story within your market, the markers of strong writing. So when you do reread your work three months later or four months later, read it in the same format as these other books, meaning in your Kindle or in your iPad and not in your computer. That's what I'm saying. Like read it in a different format and then try to be honest with yourself. Like what if anything still needs your attention? Make a list and tackle each item on that list one at a time. And then the second way, and this is a little tricky because not everybody can afford this, is you can hire a developmental editor. To borrow Carly's words, you get what you pay for. So I would hire someone who has a proven track record. It's better than an editor who doesn't. Like I would just not hire an editor unless they have a proven track record, someone with like strong books under their belt, only because, and this is unfortunate, there's a lot of people out there calling themselves editors and not everyone is good at their job. So yeah, thank you for your question and I'm rooting for you. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. And my advice to this person is pretend that you are sending the book off to your agent and I promise you that three minutes later you're going to realize the whole thing's shit and you're going to put it on hold and you're going to rewrite the whole thing in, in a month. So that's generally how it works for me. Hey guys, here's my question. If I have submitted a query to an agent who is now you know, a week or two weeks or three weeks later not receiving queries, do I assume it's a no or can I just send it? Can I send it to another agent at that agency? Okay. I've actually gotten this question a lot on social media. I will answer based on how I operate. As long as you send that query letter before the agent announced that they were closing for submissions, you're all good. Probably they closed because they have a lot of queries to catch up on and yours is one of them. So I think it's fair to assume that the agent has your query and will give it their attention in due time. However, I would keep an eye out on their social media pages just to be sure they're not sharing any specifics on this that might affect your case, right? That, that might give you more details to go on just to be safe. Thank you, Cece. Okay, here is question four. Hi, Carly, Cece, and Bianca. I have a question. Can an agent request your full manuscript just from reading your query letter alone? And if yes, what can I add to my query letter to make them request my full immediately? Okay, so yeah, I mean, I think this is this is the golden question. I think that's why everybody tunes into this podcast. I think that's what everybody wants to know, right? Like what is going to make an agent request something immediately, right? That, that's the magical question. 
the answer is we do request full manuscripts from from reading query letters sometimes because you know we just we get a feeling and and that's it i mean i think there's just so much to kind of unpack in terms of behind the scenes right it goes from you know researching the right type of agent to pitching the right type of agent to having you know the right comps it's as i said it's just it's really just a breakdown of of everything we we talk about all of this kind of goes into the magic right and it feels magical from for cc and i when we read a query letter that we really love and and get excited about it is magical but you know we all know as adults you know there's a lot that goes into to making the magic and sometimes things that read smoothly and and come easily we know there's hours and hours and hours of work that that goes into these. So, you know, what's going to make us request a full immediately? It's it's really doing the research, picking the right agents, you know, hoping that they're the ones that are they're going to get excited about it. And some of it is luck and timing. I know that's not a very fun answer. Sometimes we have things going on in, in the backgrounds of our lives. Sometimes we have clients writing books in a similar category, right? So even though you can do as much research as you possibly can, there's just some things that you're just not going to know about us, which doesn't always make it easy to to get those requests. So my best advice is, you know, listen to as much of the podcast as you can, you know, do as much kind of query letter research as you can. I was going to say, you know, my, I, I teach a query letter 101 class, but I've done it twice this year, so I don't know when I'm doing it next, but that's also, you know, the, the best advice advice as well. So I wish you all the best. Keep listening to the pod and I hope you get all your answers. Thank you, Carly. And for the listener, you know, listen out for the interview that we've done with Amber and Danielle Brown. They're twin sisters who have been writing separately and together for eight years, tons and tons of rejections with all the work that they did in that time. And then, you know, the latest book that they wrote together quite quickly in six months had a whole bunch of full requests, requests for meetings within a day or two of them sending out that query and the book sold at auction three months later. So, you know, there are these amazing success stories, even for people who have been struggling along the way. And I find that incredibly encouraging. Okay, next question. Cece. Dear Cece, Bianca and Carly, I'm writing a memoir about becoming a mother while living as an expat in Myanmar. When my son was just two months old, the Myanmar military overthrew the government, turning my first year as a mother into more of an adventure in escaping a violent military coup in the middle of a global pandemic than an adventure in parenting. Even before the coup, Myanmar was considered somewhat off the beaten track for tourism, and I know that many of my readers won't have visited Yangon, the city where most of my memoir takes place. Is it advisable to include photographs in a manuscript submission? And if so, how do I label the images and define where the photos should go? Would that be in the query letter or as a note in the manuscript itself? Thank you so much for your time. Gosh, that sounds like a journey. Okay, at the querying stage, I would say it is not advisable to include pictures. There are issues with heavy attachments and viruses and other things like that. You don't want your email to not get opened because of that. But really, um, here's what I'm getting from your question. The bigger issue, the bigger reason why I would not include pictures is that your writing is supposed to transport the reader to whatever location, whether they've been there or not. Think of the successful memoirs or novels that take place in locations that you've never been to. They transport you based on the strength of the writing alone. 
So that's what I recommend. Make sure that your writing is delivering. And I understand that you're like anxious to share those pictures. So if you really want to, you can set up a website with those pictures and include the website in your signature page. And then agents can access the website if they want. And also when you do land your agent, you will have that conversation with them, right? About whether the pictures are essential, whether there's anything you can and should do. But for now, I would focus on the bread and butter of our world, which is the writing. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. And as an author who likes to do maps and all kinds of additional content, you know, I can speak to the fact that that makes publishing a book much more expensive. And I include all kinds of things, but it ends up being extra content on the website, which readers can access there and obviously is, you know, costs nothing to put up there compared to a publisher trying to to print all of this stuff, which, which does make it a lot more expensive. Okay, Carly, question six. Hello, I want to talk about sex. I'm writing a fantasy romance that mostly takes place in my world's equivalent of a college campus. I would most comfortably describe it as new adult. However, it's my understanding that the new adult descriptor has fallen out of favor in publishing. The story contains several sexual encounters between the two main characters who are currently written as 20 and 22. Would it behoove me to age them down a couple years so my manuscript is clearly YA? And if so, can I keep the sex scenes in YA since they're consensual and between adults, albeit young ones? I don't want to just fade to black because some of the details of the sex scenes are important for character development. And also, I like spicy books. Or is it acceptable to lean into romance and just have young characters? Finally, am I totally mistaken and is new adult still a serviceable term? I'm at a point where I really need to pick a genre so it can inform some writing decisions, but I don't want to write myself into a situation where I'm unpublishable because of sex. So what are the guidelines here? Thank you. I really look forward to your feedback. All right. So this is uh, always a fun question to to kind of dive into both parts the the new adult part and the, the sex part because the we I didn't play the song but you know the let's talk about sex baby and I feel like I need to play that every episode because we end up covering it but okay I'm gonna tackle the new adult stuff first so I feel so conflicted about this terminology because as I have to think about it in two ways. I have to think about it as an industry professional and I have to think about it from the reader's perspective. So I understand that there has been there, you know, in the past, there has been a wave, we can call it, I guess, of new adult fiction. I think it kind of rose and fell with the kind of early adoption of self-publishing and that sort of thing. So I I just don't think it is as relevant as a term as it has been in the past, but I understand readers' desire to want it, right? Like I, I get that part, right? Wanting to read about new adults, wanting to read about college-age adults, whether they are of that age, you know, that, that, that target audience, or whether, you know, it's any sort of adult. So I get that from a reader's perspective and from an author's perspective, being like, I'm trying to write a, a, write a great book, you know, now, now where do I put it? However, now I put my industry hat on. My industry hat tells me there is no bucket for this. There is no bucket. Adult fiction is adult fiction. Kidlit fiction is kidlit fiction. The way that you're describing this, and you know, it's only a, a one minute clip kind of question, but the way that you're describing this, it's absolutely an adult fantasy novel to me. I don't think this is YA and not not so much, you know, necessarily about the sex portion of it, but also, you know, college age kids are adults, you know, as much as I just called them kids, you know what I mean? Like they are adults, they are new adults, but they have to be put in the adult category. So 
you know, I think that the YA genre just has completely different expectations. And as soon as somebody goes off to college, they're an adult, right? They're living on their own. And part of the new adult genre, if you want to call it that, was about firsts, right? It was the whole idea of like what new adult was, was it was first, right? First love, first time living alone, maybe first time paying your bills, you know, first time going to school by yourself, first time living alone, right? Like all of those things were, that was what new adult was. But the industry hasn't grown and adapted to create a placeholder for this. So it just doesn't exist in the minds of publishing professionals the way that it maybe still exists in authors' minds or readers' minds, which, so th- yeah, that's why, that's why I, I can't, I can't tell you to call it new adult because you could pitch it to me as new adult. I can't go pitch to an editor as new adult because I'm going to have to pitch it to an editor as adult fiction. So that's why I'm trying to kind of just let you know how I would look at it. Therefore, you might want to change the way that you think about it. So I think you're asking the right questions. I think you understand that this is complicated. But please, I mean, I would say put it in adult fiction for a number of reasons. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Okay, question seven. And then we're going to ask Cece to answer it for us. Hello, ladies. My name is Eric Scott. I'm a fairly new listener to this podcast, but I'm devouring up every old episode as fast as I can, and I'm loving it. I'm reaching out today to ask a question in regards to genre and word count. I'm currently working on a fantasy novel for adults that will be the first in a series. I've noticed that most of the fantasy novels I read, even ones from debut authors, typically have a very high word count, often ranging from 175 to 300,000 words. My book falls around the 200,000 word range. Is this going to put a lot of agents off and hinder me from finding representation as a debut author? Or do most agents expect a higher word count when it comes to fantasy epics? I have read a few different opinions online, but I wanted to get your input. Thanks again, Eric. Holy moly, 175 to 300,000 words. Like, that seems like a very high word count. That just tells me that I don't know the epic fantasy market all that well, because to me, it just seems like way too long. But I trust that you've done your research. So I will answer your question, but like, obviously take it with a grain of salt because I don't know anything about this market, clearly. Um, I think you should aim for a word count that's consistent with the market you've described, with the debuts in that market. So you're telling me that your book is 200,000 words and you're, you've said that you've seen debuts that are at the 175,000 word mark. I know higher too, but you, you said that 175 was part of that. So that tells me you're within the range. Assuming your research is correct, I don't think it'll put the agents off. I will say that I DM'd a whole bunch of agents I know and actually even posed this question on the Slack channel that I'm a part of with, it's called Young to Agenting. We're just, we're not necessarily young agents, but we are young to agenting. And I asked everyone, like, what was the longest book you've ever sold? And 150 was the winner, 150,000 words. So yeah, it's, again, don't know the epic fantasy market clearly, but that's a lot of words. So so congrats to you for writing that. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Okay, next question for Carly. Hi, everyone. I was just wondering, I've started, you know, querying different agents in Canada. And I'm wondering, I've I mean, I think this is often the case, but I've started like, you know, doing a bit more research about the querying process after I already started querying. And one thing that I'm realizing I may have messed up on in my queries was my comp titles and maybe a few other things in my query letter. And I'm just wondering, I know comp titles are important for when the agent is looking through their queries, but I'm just wondering like if the comps are completely off and like if you've, you know, misgenred your 
book, for example, if that would be a write-off or if the agent always does read, you know, the first five, ten pages, whatever it is that they've requested that you include in the email. Or if, you know, as soon as they see that the comps are off, they're like, no, we're done. And they don't read the actual text. Thank you. Oh, man, I have a lot of sympathy for this, right? You send the queries out and then you're like, wait a minute, maybe I made I made some errors or maybe I didn't do the most complete job that I could have with the information that I have now. So as I said, I have a lot of a lot of sympathy for this. So in terms of like you describe it kind of like as messing up, right? So there are ways to mess up. I don't think comp titles is something that I would describe as messing up. It's just it is a tool for pitching. It is a clarity kind of device as well. So I don't I don't think I would call it messing up. If you used comp titles that were not even part of your genre at all. So for example, you wrote an adult book and your comps were YA or something like that, right? It's just, you're just not using the tool as effectively as you could be, right? If we think about it as, as a tool of communication. So yeah, I don't think you need to kind of, you know, worry, you know, or resend it with like new comps or anything like that. Once queries are out in the world, they're out in the world, right? It's like not really that we can we can take them back or or something like that. It's it's an experience and it's a a learning curve for everybody. And I do think, you know, a lot of people learn as they go. I don't judge a query letter by its comps. It does really help my framing and understanding for how you view your book, the positioning that you see of your project, the way that I'm going to understand it. All of these are tools, right? Everything from, you know, your hook to your comps, to your word count, to your title, right? All of these are selling tools to kind of help you do the best job that you possibly can. So if you didn't maximize these, all of these tools, you know, again, I don't think you messed up. I just think you could have done better and, and that's okay. And and once we, once we learn more, we know more, right? So yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't stress, but I would try to do better for your next batch. Awesome, Carly. Thank you. Right. Second last question for Cece to answer. Hello to everyone at my favorite podcast. I have a question about comps. There's a recent book that on the surface is a great comp packaging wise and has some good buzz on Goodreads and social media, but I've read it. I didn't love it. And, you know, sorry to say, have seen some less than stellar reviews from critics. So I'm wondering, should I still use it as a comp, given that from a marketing perspective, it's basically perfect, even if from a more craft or literary perspective, I would hope my work is not a match. Thanks so much for sharing your wisdom. This is a tough one. Ideally, you love your comps, but I think it's going to come down to what other options do you have, if any. Have you thoroughly researched the market? You know, I think you have to ask yourself this question and you have to remember that you have no reason to lie because you'd only be lying to yourself. No reason to fool yourself. Have you thoroughly researched the market? I would make sure that I put in the work to find that perfect comp Talk to librarians, talk to booksellers, talk to your writing community, go to Twitter. I don't know, if you're able to spend some time online, I would really just dive deep and find a perfect comp that positions your book and that you really like. However, at the same time, let's say that you've already done this. You've already spent all this time researching your perfect comp. The perfect is the enemy of the good. So if after doing all that research, you still can't find better alternatives, go for it. And if the issues that you feel, for example, that your writing is more literary than this comp, then you can always say, my book is like X, but the writing in mine skews literary or whatever makes sense to set yours apart. 
Thank you, Cece. Okay, now's our last question, which Carly's going to answer. Hi. You guys have been terrific lately about telling us how long the queries are. My question is, when you get some of those longer queries, you know, the 450, 475, we even had one over 500, I think, this last week. If you are getting that in your inbox as an agent, as opposed to an agent doing this podcast, would you continue reading through to the end of the query? Just curious about that. Thank you. All right. Well, I'm glad everybody's really liking this word count query thing where we kind of, you know, let you know how long things are. I think it's helping everybody understand, right? And you said there's some long ones, right? The 475 over 500. So I think agents get very good at skimming, looking for words that we are looking for. And so when something is long, I'm going to read all the pertinent information like genre, title, you know, hook, all of that sort of thing. It's really everybody gets long in that meaty bit in the middle, right? And so I'm going to be looking for, is this book interesting to me? And I could be looking for a number of a number of things. Sometimes pitches get long when it's dual POV. So I might be looking just like skimming to say like, oh, hey, here's one POV. Do I like this POV? Skim, skim, skim. Next POV. Sometimes I am, as I said, I'm, I'm looking for that, you know, headlining content in that in that first paragraph. I could be skimming to the bottom. I could be reading the author bio and then I might be going back up, right? It's not like I read like line by line on a line level every single query. My eyes bounce around because I'm looking for information that's grabbing me. So I'm not always reading everything linearly. I'm, I'm reading to be entertained. I'm reading to be hooked, right? Like this is a pitch. So I just do a whole lot of skimming sometimes. And sometimes I go back and read it again. I might read it three times, but my eyes are dancing around. My eyes are looking for the important information. So even when they're long, I'm not discounting them. I'm just, you know, my eyes are just moving around the page quite a bit. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Carly and Cece, for answering everyone's questions. And for the rest of you who have questions, get them in and we will answer them in our next bonus episode. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. 
They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of one hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June, with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hi everyone, welcome to another comp session in which our favorite book person, Emily Summer, joins us from East City Bookshop in Washington, D.C. to answer your burning comp questions. Emily, welcome to the show again. Thank you so much for having me back. You know, I love to be here. And we really appreciate you taking the time out, especially at this time of year. I know how crazy busy it is. Okay, so let us begin with the first question. Hi there. Thanks so much for doing this. I'm really struggling with comps for my finished manuscript and would be super grateful for some help. It's a 140,000 word multi-POV adult fantasy novel set in a modern fictional world. In the novel, people got their magic from six gods who protected the world thousands of years ago and passed on their abilities to their descendants. The souls of the gods also reincarnate over and over again in six powerful individuals who are treated like modern celebrities. The novel follows four adults, including one of the six reincarnations, who attend an exclusive and dangerous training academy for their abilities in an attempt to overcome their personal demons. Some of the key themes revolve around familial legacies, the power of dangerous political and religious ideologies, celebrity culture, and the importance of friendship in overcoming trauma and grief. It also has a diverse cast of characters spanning race, sexuality, and disability. I'd be so grateful for any comp titles you can think of. Thanks. I was immediately struck by the idea of these reincarnated gods and the preoccupation with celebrity. I think that sounds fascinating. So I look forward to seeing this one on the shelves one day. My first thought was Legendborn by Tracy Dion, which is a YA novel, but it has lots of adult crossover appeal. We have many adult readers of Tracy Dion in our store. And I thought of that one because that is a book that deals with inheritance of special powers, descendants of powerful beings. In this case, it's the Knights of the Round Table and not deities, but the same issues of familial legacy apply. So I would definitely look at Tracy Dion. And then in terms of an adult comp, I immediately thought about She Who Became the Sun by Shelley Parker Chan, which is a very recent book that has done extraordinarily well. And it talks about the idea of empire and ideology 
and how dangerous that can be. And I think it will have a lot of similar themes and crossover. So I would look at both of those. Wonderful. Thank you. Okay, let's move on to the next one. Hi, my book, Egg Baby, is dual point of view, dual timeline, book club fiction. In 1994, Kanan Twentyman died on an amusement park ride while on a class trip. Her sister Temple tells the horrible story. Rachel Nelson, 20 years later, tells her version of the events. She feels guilty. She sat next to Kanan on that ride. She thinks she's sick because of it. But maybe she's sick with some other chronic thing. In fact, she is. She has multiple sclerosis. My book is about memory and pain and healing and all the things we do to ourselves so that we can go on. Thank you so much. I love this title, Egg Baby. I would pick it up off the shelf based on that alone. I also love a dual timeline, especially when it's set in the 90s. I feel like we have talked about, if not this exact book, another book that dealt with an amusement park catastrophe. So I, I urge this writer to listen back on past discussions because I think we've talked about some things that have had some overlap at least. I immediately thought about The Long and Far Away Gone by Lou Burney, which I probably mentioned the last time we talked about something that had an amusement park death. That is a book that is also dual POV, dual timeline, and talks at length about survivor's guilt. That one, the initial crime, in this case, it's the tragedy is a crime, and it takes place in the late 80s at a state fair. So not in the 90s, not an amusement park, but I think similar enough in an absolutely brilliant book. And because of the 90s nostalgia and the themes about memory and pain and healing and the book club fiction tone of this work, I thought about The People We Keep by Alison Larkin, which is absolutely one of my favorites of the last year. I have now read it in three different book clubs. So it, it definitely hits that note. Wonderful, Emily. Thank you. All right. Next one. Thanks so much for your podcast and this amazing opportunity for Comp Help. I have an interior literary novel told through Lena, a photojournalist returning to Oaxaca, Mexico, after spending a formative school year there. With her is her adolescent son, who's outgrowing their nest. They meet an old Oaxacan friend with whom Lena had an intense affair in New York until he admitted he was married and a father. Now a professor and activist and divorced, he longs to rekindle their romance, but the deceit festers. Soon her son discovers his origins and is furious at the withholding. Journeying from vacation to state violence, from a sunlit church to an austere city temple, from a dear friend's grave to questions of survival, themes are motherhood, empty nesting, betrayal, forgiveness, and Oaxaca's indigenous struggles. I'm considering King Salver's The Lacuna, Marion Wiggins' Evidence of Things Unseen, and Ferranti's The Lost Daughter. I think that the comps that this author suggests are spot on. I think The Lacuna by Barbara Kingsolver might be slightly old for what we're usually looking for. And Elena Ferrante, The Lost Daughter, might she might be one of those that is a little bit too big to mention without some qualifiers. So I thought of a movie tie-in, which, you know, sometimes we mention these pop culture incidents as well. And I thought of the new Paul Mescal movie called After Sun, which is major the lost daughter vibes. It is, in this case, a daughter's last vacation with her single father. But I think very similar themes. I would urge everybody to at least watch that movie. I found it extremely touching and wonderful. And in terms of books, I would look at Hades Argentina by Daniel Lodell, 
So this takes place in between America and Argentina, not Mexico, but it talks about family secrets, a young man's coming of age and grappling with things that he has done and his family has done. And I would look to at Katie Gutierrez's More Than You'll Ever Know, which also has a Mexico angle and talks about family secrets, identity, and grappling with those kinds of things. Great, Emily. Thank you. Okay, next one. I'm looking for comps for my suspenseful women's fiction. If you see something, 84,000 words with three point of view characters, which takes place in present day Colorado ski country. Single mom Jane Dawson notices things others don't. Her world is rocked when her ex-husband arrives in town to entice their teenage son to spend the summer, maybe longer, with him in New Zealand. Rebounding, Jane becomes attracted to handsome customer John Matsura in the coffee shop where she works. Secretly, he is on a mission of historical revenge. He quietly prepares a unique poison that will flow into Denver's water supply. Jane comically stumbles in her attempts to flirt with him. Jane also protests an expansion of the local ski resort and comes to the attention of undercover FBI agent George McHenry, investigating threats against the resort. When her actions make her a person of interest, the FBI team moves in. The three characters collide on a moonless night at Dillon Reservoir. Thank you for this opportunity. So for this one, I thought of one, a book that I have certainly mentioned here before, because I think it is the best recent example of suspenseful women's fiction. So page turning suspense that is not necessarily a strict mystery and has a domestic angle. And that book is The Last Thing He Told Me by Laura Dave, still in hardcover because it just keeps selling and it's going to keep on selling because it's about to be made into a movie with Jennifer Garner. I would absolutely look at the last thing he told me. The Colorado setting made me think of one of my favorite mysteries, which is The Descent by Tim Johnston. I might look at that and see if any of the vibes are similar, although that one is more of a traditional missing persons mystery, but the Colorado setting is just absolutely perfect. And for tone, you know, you can look at these and see if the tone is right, but the comic struggles to flirt that were mentioned in this blurb made me think of Finley Donovan, the Finley Donovan books by El Cosimano, and Grave Reservations by Sherry Priest. So both of these are books where they might resonate, the main character might resonate. If this is a woman who notices more than other people and is finds herself caught up in things that she's unprepared for and that are outside of her actual career scope, I think that both of these books would be a really nice fit. Plus, they're very entertaining. So they really hit the sweet spot. Awesome. Okay, next one. I would love comps ideas for my historical magical realism manuscript with simmering feminist indignation about the arbitrary ways in which society privileges some ways of being over others. It also addresses themes of acceptance, unconditional love, and what it means for a woman to stand in her own truth. Eloisa spent her life trying to hide her ability to manipulate fire. When Faith Healer Matthew comes to her rural Ontario town in 1924, she wonders if he might be the one person she can trust. But when Matthew learns the truth, he feels God is calling him to heal what is unnatural in her. Ten years later, the fault lines in their marriage are exposed, and Eloise must protect her daughters from the worst of their father's religious fervor. This story has the emotional intimacy of Sally Rooney's Normal People meets the social commentary of Alex Harrow's The Once and Future Witches, but those comps are too old and quite a reach. Beta readers have compared the writing and tone to Harrow and also Kieran Millwood Hargrave's The Mercies. I was excited to read Hester by Laurie Lico Albanese and think this might be a good fit. Thanks in advance for your thoughts. 
Oh, I loved reading about this one because I think it's so interesting because I think when we when we hear about magical realism, we either think of it in terms of like a true, more fantasy setting or in terms of contemporary. So I loved the idea of this historical fiction that has those magical realism elements. But in the description, I felt like what jumped out at me the most was the historical fiction piece. And, and then this focus on religious fervor, even more than the main character's abilities that she's trying to hide. And I would agree with our submission that Sally Rooney and Alex Harrow probably are not quite right. So I would say Sally Rooney is not right, not because normal people is too old, but one, I think it's a little bit too big to satisfactorily comp. And two, I think when people hear Sally Rooney, they think modern and contemporary and young and fresh. So it's not gonna, it's not gonna make whoever is reading the query think of historical fiction, even if the tone and voice are similar. So I agree that we should look elsewhere. And I thought about Paulette Giles, one of my absolute favorite historical fiction writers. So her book, News of the World, is my favorite. It's going to capture that rural, historical, very readable, beautiful vibe. Her more recent book, Simon the Fiddler, I think would fit that as well. And in terms of the focus on religious fervor and women fighting against their place in those systems, I would look at Monica West's recent revival season or Kelsey McKenney's God Spare the Girls. So both of those are more modern, realistic fiction novels, but they talk about faith and when faith collides with feminism and the needs of the women in the community. And I think the mix of like a Paulette Giles comp plus these recent religious fundamentalism novels would be a really great sweet spot. Great, Emily. Thank you. Next one. I'm calling for help finding comp titles for my young adult sci-fi romance, Vicariously. In near future LA, where tech lets people experience broadcasts in five senses, driven but penniless new graduate Beck Fiore wants nothing more than to get a job so she can finally afford to live life for herself. Unfortunately, her only option is auditioning for reality shows run by the government to entertain the poverty-stricken masses. Beck must gain a huge following at the tryouts, and on-screen romances are the easiest way to do that. When she reconnects with childhood rival Ash, she can't tell if their chemistry is real or all for the audience, a question that only grows when they start fake dating at the suggestion of a producer. The closer Beck gets to a job, the more she questions how real her new life would be and whether having money to save her loved ones is worth being part of the system she's saving them from. The novel combines the character-driven explorations of technology common in Black Mirror with a prominent rival friends-to-lovers subplot reminiscent of The Hating Game, kind of a less comedic version of Upload, the Amazon series. I'm really struggling to find young adult book comps that combine the voicey, sometimes lighthearted rom-com beats with the dystopian world and overtones. I love when people already have their title because then I can really sort of think about it. So for Vicariously, I am preoccupied with celebrity and reality shows. So that jumps out at me immediately. And I thought about the adult book Following by Megan Angelo because that is a book. It's an adult book, but lots of crossover appeal. And it discusses themes of technology, celebrity, and how we grapple with those issues. So I would absolutely take a look at that Megan Angelo book. And then I would look at mixing the vibes. I agree it is a fine line to meet these, but I think that sometimes disparate comps can give the air of the book. I would look at YA friends to lovers like Frankly in Love by David Yoon. That's got the fake dating angle. And then for dystopians, I would look at YA writers like Marie Lu, who wrote Legend, Victoria Aviard, who wrote Red Queen, and Ali Condi, who wrote Matched. 
So I would look at, you know, think of other YA fake dating and YA dystopians and some some mix of those I think is going to fit nicely. Awesome, Emily. Okay, next one. I'm looking for help comping my book, The Silver City, a YA fantasy novel set in a medieval Irish-inspired world. This dual POV story follows Neva, a girl trying to save and win the affection of her isolated village who thinks she's an omen of death, and also follows Beck, a gender non-binary gambler who's determined to do whatever it takes to keep Neva alive. The next one, Silver City, our medieval YA, this one, our submission wondered if Babel was too similar. I would say no. If that is the closest comp and the issue is that it's too close, I would let your agent deal with that down the line. Like right now, you just want to get someone to read it. So if that one is close, I would absolutely consider it and mention it. It's so new and it's so, it's doing so well. I would absolutely mention it in there. I would also mention The Witch's Heart by Genevieve Gornacek. This one has Norse vibes, not Irish vibes, but I think other than that, it's going to fit very nicely and appeal to the same readers. I would look at Crier's War, which is another queer young adult fantasy that is recent and has done very well. I would look in terms of other medieval YA at the books of Kirsten White. She has many. So even just a comp to Kirsten White in general, I think would get the point across. And finally, So This Is Ever After by F.T. Lukens. So that is a queer questing fantasy YA that just came out this year or last year. It's very recent and has done really well in our store and others. So I think between all of those, this, this person can have a really good, strong comp. So wonderful to see all these awesome queer YA books coming out now because like 10 years ago you weren't seeing this and it's just, you know, representation matters. This is so incredibly important and they've got choice. It's not like you walk into a bookstore and there's one, you know. Absolutely. There's choice and it's appealing to all readers. You know, a, a savvy reader of any orientation or identity can enjoy these really wonderful books. So it's not it's not just the mirror, but it's a window too for everybody. Yeah. Okay, next one. Hi, I'm looking for comp titles for my YA novel that's set in 1990s Queens, New York. The tone is nostalgic, lighthearted, and comforting. It's a coming-of-age story about 15-year-old Melanie Crofton, who's having trouble keeping the promises she made to herself when she graduated middle school. It's now the end of Melanie's freshman year, and she hasn't achieved anything she set out to do, like make the school's softball team or find a boyfriend. On top of that, Melanie's friendship with her best friend is on shaky ground, and a terrible mistake ruins her summer plans. When her longtime crush leaves the country for the year, she begins writing him letters, first to express her feelings for him, but then to confide in someone in a way she can't in real life. She just wishes he would write back. As Melanie enters her second year of high school, she tries to right the wrongs of freshman year, but it isn't as easy as she hopes it will be, and there are some unexpected twists along the way. Set in a time before emails and text messages, the story celebrates both the struggles and joys of life as a teenager. Thanks so much. Okay, so now we're in 1990s Queens. After this many segments, I think anybody who's listened to more than one knows that I love, I'm a child of the 90s, or I'm a teen of the 90s. I was a child of the 80s. So I love anything that is set in the 90s. And the letters that are sent to this this boy who has moved away struck such a sweet spot with me. And I thought immediately of the young adult classic Sloppy First by Megan McCafferty. So in that series, our main character is not writing to a boy who's moved away. She's writing to her best friend who's moved away. And it is an older series. However, it has been re-released just in the last couple of years as anniversary editions. 
And Rebecca Searle, who's doing very well now, has written YA and recently very popular adult books, re-released and wrote the introduction. So it is an older book that has had a new life very recently. And I think the older setting and the letters would, would fit very well with a comp for Megan McCafferty. And then I thought of another movie, which is um, Bo Burnham's brilliant coming of age piece, Eighth Grade. So I think this character sounds like an older or a, a past version of Elsie Fisher. So I might look at Eighth Grade by Bo Burnham and then check out Megan McCafferty's series. And for more recent books, I would look at Stephanie Parkins. Wonderful, Emily. Thank you. Next one. Hello, I am looking for comps for my work in progress. It is a Rivals to Lovers romance set in academia. It is second chance adjacent because the main character and love interest had a mutual crush in college, but neither acted on it back then. Um, Many years later, they are now in a teaching program together, competing for a single spot at a prestigious private high school when they graduate and get their credentials. The current comps I have are Beach Read and The Makeup Test, but I'm not sure if Emily Henry might be too big to comp, and it's also worth noting that while my book has some heat, it is currently a closed-door fade-to-black situation, so I'm wondering if I should find a comp in that vein. Thanks! So just as I said with our submission that thought that Babel by R.F. Kuang might be too similar... This person wonders if Beat Read by Emily Henry might be too similar. And I do agree that Emily Henry is such a hot ticket that it, it's possible that everybody who's got a, a romance right now is comping to Emily Henry. However, before I even heard that in the voicemail message, I had already thought about Beat Read. The rivals to lover romance, the, the mutual crush in college, and the competitive angle of the present day, I think it screams beach read. So I would, I would put it in there. I think it's too on the nose not to. And then for the, I don't think it's necessary to qualify or warn away that this is, that this is a closed door and not as spicy as others. I don't think that that is necessary right off the bat, although you have so many agents on that they could disagree. But I might suggest comping to just other writers of similar style. And I thought about Catherine Center and Beth O'Leary, who are both write this sort of the uh, books that that to me seem like they would have this feel. And so just comping to those writers might give the impression that these are not, these are not spicy. This is not The Roommate by Rosie Dannon, which is my number one spicy romance, but something a little more subtle. Wonderful, Emily. Thank you so much for taking the time. We really appreciate it. For our listeners, if you have phoned in with a comp request sort of a month ago and you haven't heard us answer it, please phone in again. We've had some glitches with the Telby software in which, you know, a recording's there, but for some reason or the other, we can't access it. So we're now sort of up to speed with all of the requests that we got before the end of November. If you did submit before then and you haven't heard us talk about it, please phone in again and we will get to that as soon as we can. Emily, thank you so much. We're wishing you an awesome festive season in the bookstore. We hope that people will have realized that there are supply chain issues, that they'll be getting in really early with their Christmas shopping and that you guys sell a ton of books. Thank you so much, Bianca, and happy holidays to you and all of your listeners. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. 
Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. 
Don't forget there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.